Before you listen to this podcast, just a quick word on some special offers for PTO listeners. For a short time only, new $8 patrons can get a free one-year print and digital subscription to Tribune magazine. New $5 patrons can get 50% off a Tribune subscription, and all new $3 patrons of the show can get 70% off any new ebook from Repeater Books. Their many excellent titles include Stolen, How to Save the World from Financialization by Grace Blakely, K-Punk, The Collected and Unpublished Writings of Mark Fisher, and Abolish Silicon Valley by Wendy Liu. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on the drums. Hello and welcome to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Philip Morawski. Philip's 2013 book, Never Let a Serious Crisis Go to Waste, diagnosed why it was that, in spite of the claims of many intelligent and prominent commentators, the financial crisis did not lead to the end of neoliberalism. Once again, in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, time is being called on the neoliberal era. I spoke to Philip about whether neoliberalism will once again survive and even thrive in the wake of the coronavirus-induced global economic crisis. If you would like to hear the extended hour-length version of today's interview, then please consider becoming a supporter on Patreon. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from $3 a month, which is just over £2. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Philip Morawski is Professor of Economics and Policy Studies and the History and Philosophy of Science at the University of Notre Dame. His books include Machine Dreams, Economics Becomes a Cyborg Science, Science Mart, Privatising American Science, and Never Let a Serious Crisis Go to Waste, How Neoliberalism Survived the Financial Meltdown. So to prepare for this interview, I went back to your 2013 book on on neoliberalism and the financial crisis, uh, Never Let a Serious Crisis Go to Waste, which I think I would have first read shortly after it was after it was published. And in that book, you were partly seeking to explain why it was that in spite of the crash, leading to all these diagnoses of the death of neoliberalism from many commentators, uh, that was very much not the way the crisis played out. And in, in, in many respects, the uh, financial crisis uh, served to reinforce the the dominance of neoliberalism. And now, obviously, we're once more in a crisis which which seems on the face of it to many to, to pose a profound threat to the neoliberals. But before we get into the question of, of what the crisis means for neoliberalism, it's probably helpful if, if you could maybe sketch out how you understand neoliberalism and how your understanding differs from other descriptions. You know, I realise, of course, any answer to that question is going to have to be uh, in this format. It's going to have to be a bit of a, a simplification. I probably differ from uh, many of the other people who talk about neoliberalism is that 
uh, I and a group of people I work with uh, uh, around Dieter Pleva, Quinn Slobodian, and others tend to define neoliberalism at, largely in terms of the actual historical groups that have developed the political thought rather than, you know, a sort of a Ten Commandment list of what it actually is. Um, but I think that uh, some of the most salient points are, first, it's not laissez-faire, okay? It's not this idea of, you know, getting small state. The yeah, small state sort of stuff. It's not that. If anything, I think one thing that all the work on neoliberalism has shown pretty dramatically is that it's really about strong states instead. Uh, it's about strong states to construct the kinds of market society that the neoliberals have come to believe in. So uh, that, of course, opens up the issue of what is that society. And that differs, I think, quite dramatically across cultural uh, boundaries and, and national boundaries, too. Um, and that's why one needs to kind of do a history of it because the the local aspects need to be played uh, played out. But uh, over and above that, I think there are uh, one or two uh, shared points. I think one point is that neoliberals really believe that uh, people are kind of inherently bad cognizers. They can't work their way out of their problems just by thinking. And, and in fact, you know, you shouldn't really trust most people's thought processes in terms of understanding uh, society, what needs to be done, you know, what causes what, all the rest of that. And so, of course, that sounds like a very negative doctrine, right? Um, you know, that the people are incapable of uh, pursuing their own democratic ends. And actually, neoliberals generally believe that, that democracy itself is flawed because people can't understand the nature of their problems. But for them, um, there's an upbeat uh, answer to all of that. And that's the market, that they have changed the meaning of what a market is fairly dramatically from earlier uh, thought in economics, which tended to treat it as allocation of of scarce resources to given ends or something like that as a kind of something that moves stuff around. They think of a market more as an epistemic proposition, that the market is the greatest information processor known to mankind. Uh, this starts with Hayek, but then it feeds through a number of uh, the other major figures. And the reason that that's important is that people have to come to understand politically that they have to, in a sense, uh, concede that the market knows more than they do, and so that they have to kind of uh, adjust all their desires, all their hopes, their fears, all the rest of it, to what the market tells them is necessary. And I think that really is one of the main uh, doctrines that holds together in many of the different subschools of uh, neoliberalism. And I don't want to get into that very deeply, but um, another thing that the historians have done, uh, I and others, is to kind of distinguish uh, uh, how the subschools have developed and, and how they differ to a certain extent. And the subschools could be anything like the Chicago School in the United States. That's the one that I've done the most work on. But um, the reason I need to 
band together with other people is because the Ordo liberals in the German language context are another important subschool. The Austrian school is another important subschool. The Virginia school of uh, uh, public choice is another important subschool. So, uh, you know, part of this uh, playing out of the political uh, implications of neoliberalism means inquiring what do each of these subschools uh, uh, think and, and promulgate as their their ideas towards political economy. And those uh, different subschools that you talk about, they are able in some respects to to feed into very uh, divergent political tendencies, right? So we can think of a, a neoliberalism uh, that's associated with a kind of uh, a certain sort of liberal internationalism. Um, you, you know, I'm thinking of figures like Tony Blair and, and George Osborne in the British context, uh, but can also feed into uh, a reactionary na- nationalist politics as well. Right. And I think that's another reason why uh, you, you've heard earlier people say that somehow um, uh, neoliberalism has been rejected by, you know, recent political developments, when in fact, uh, if you know anything about the history of neoliberalism, there actually are uh, differing approaches as to uh, what the attitudes of the particular uh, polity should be um, that differ really fairly dramatically. I mean, on the one hand, of course, there are the internationalists who believe that, you know, uh, Basically, there should be no national control over international trade and that it should all be uh, market dominated. But um, what's interesting is that we get closer to the present. There was a kind of a, a subschool of neoliberalism, uh, at least in the United States, largely associated with Murray Rothbard, that openly advocated a sort of a, uh, a market populism and uh, really flirted with much more fascistic t- uh, tendencies in political economy. Um, and uh, one or two people have uh, interestingly pointed out that much of what we consider to be this kind of author- authoritarian Trumpism was advocated by these Rothbardites 20 years ago, uh, including American first, including the idea that experts are the danger and that, you know, we have to let the people decide what they want to believe. And that's, you know, that's really the way to go. Um, And that what will happen is that the market will somehow uh, destroy all of these experts and, and allow the people to truly express themselves. I mean, this is very weird stuff, but, it, um, you know, it's very much uh, relevant to the present circumstances. Do you think that also draws upon an earlier period of neoliberalism, um, the sort of Reagan-Thatcher period, which I'm not sure how this plays out in the US, but certainly in the UK context, it it seems like the authoritarianism and social conservatism of of early Thatcherism is is forgotten. And that that is something that is being drawn upon in this in this uh, period now. Mm -hmm. Well, I. I'm, I'm thinking of uh, some of the work that I really like on neoliberalism by a guy named Thomas B. Brisher, who has, uh, who has argued about, you know, there's an assumption that neoliberalism arose to oppose authoritarianism. And in fact, I'm sure that's the way uh, a lot of the early authors like Hayek thought about it. But he points out that then their, their real problem is that they have no imagination in their theory how they are going to get people in general, to accept their political so-called reforms, when in fact, of course, they're not going to like any of them. They're not going because they think that the people are not um, able to understand how the market knows more than they do. So, so this 
uh, puts them in a kind of a bind, right? Is that how are they ever going to achieve their political objectives? And so what they're driven to do, in effect, is to essentially uh, concede that authoritarianism is the only way that they are going to triumph, in a sense. I mean, it's a very interesting argument that they're against authoritarianism, but the logic of their position leads to nothing more than authoritarianism, at least for them to politically succeed. And I think lessons have been learned about that, that that's not just an, uh, an abstract argument, that in fact, the development of what I and others call the neoliberal thought collective is an attempt to kind of build a capacity, a political capacity up that can take advantage of crisis situations and uh, and move rapidly to impose the kind of uh, reforms that they think are, are ideal. And I know this sounds a little bit like Naomi Klein, which is, you know, reasonable in some sense, but I, I think it's deeper than that, that in fact, you know, they build up uh, a really a deep bench of, of ideas and people who are able to move very quickly when crises are all arise. And I, as you know, from the book, I argue that that's what they did back in 2008. And that's what they're for sure. That's what they're doing now that I think, you know, this whole dream of the left that somehow, you know, people are that the virus is going to go away, and that people are going to wake up and look around and see, you know, that that uh, global warming really was a problem and so forth. And, you know, going to change the way that they look at the world. I mean, that that is so far from the political understandings that the neoliberals have that they have to strike while the iron is hot and that's now and i th i would argue that that's what they're doing i mean that there are all kinds of evidence uh they talk among themselves too as you could imagine and uh, there's there's already discussions on their part of the kind what they see as successes that is this early into the crisis they they see that they are enjoying all kinds of political successes i i you don't get that feeling from i think from uh left discussions or from you know the general media either what do those successes consist of? I mean, are we talking yeah. about certain forms of, I mean, you know, things like environmental deregulation that have been possible in the States because of the crisis? Or what do those victories yeah, consist of? right. <laughs> now, it, it, it's certainly early days and, you know, who know? well, we can talk about this, where things are going. But, you know, they, they talk about a whole bunch of very specific things. And by the way, a lot of this is going to be more specific to the American context, because those are the ones that I'm listening to. I mean, I would love to listen to the, you know, what's going on, uh, uh, alternative for Deutschland right now, and what do they think is going on, but in Germany, but, um, for example, uh, they think that they have had all kinds of successes with regard to, uh, uh medical, uh, medical developments in the United States. For example, they see what's going on is the gutting of all kinds of rules of control of the FDA over drugs. Uh, they see a boosting of privatized telemedicine in the United States, which, by the way, is something that they have proposed for a long, long time, um, that they, they have thought that, you know, we've got to get rid of this kind of personalized idea that poor people can see a doctor. I mean, now that they're, you know, they think this is great. And they also see all these developments, of, you know, anti-FDA and, uh, and pro-telemedicine as blocking 
a state-run single-payer system in the United States. That is, that it's less likely that it could ever happen now than it would happen before. Hmm. Um, yeah. See, this is interesting that people you don't hear this in the media. Um, they 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 like the idea that uh, this is turning pharma into a heroic sector. When in fact, you know, there was a lot of political pushback against pharma and pharma was getting a bad rap before. Well, that's all being undone now. So that's great from their point of view. They love the idea that this is inadvertently causing a re-engineering of higher education. They have long argued that higher education, uh, you know, is just something that most people can't have. And now, so what's going to happen is that we're going to have widespread distance education, which is, of course, one of their uh, goals anyway. So, in effect, this is uh, not gutting higher education, and it's gutting public education in the United States. It's promoting homeschooling, which is something they've always been in favor of. Um, it's even boosting much more privatization of elementary education. So that's great. They, they like the idea that an inadvertent effect of the crisis is to kill the U.S. post office. Yeah. They've been, they've been, no, see, they've been in favor of that for a long time. See, the, uh, the, some of the points that I'm making are these are projects that they've had kind of sitting on the back burner. And now they see, you know, here's the, uh, you know, here's our chance. You know, here we can actually, it, partly unintended consequence of, of the crisis, but partly, you know, they're ready to kind of, you know, give it the final nudge to have these things happen. And um, I think the strongest effect that you can see is this recent rise over the last week, I don't know how much you, you guys have been following it, of all these demonstrations and a kind of a revival of the Tea Party. Yeah, uh, open uh, the economy. Yeah, right. With that, you know, reopen the economy, all that kind of stuff. See, what, what that shows is that they learned from the last crisis that uh, the Tea Party started out in the last crisis probably not so much as an astroturfed phenomenon. But now they have all of these kind of uh, astroturfed organizations in place. And so what they have done is they have blown this up from essentially almost nothing to uh, a, a largely uh, coordinated uh, astroturfed set of uh, demonstrations, which I think are going to have untold consequences for the uh, future politics of America. And again, the left's not paying attention to this at all. As you say, what you're describing is is, is dramatically different from a, a lot of the um, discussion on the left, which is talking yeah, about the I ways <laughs> the ways in which the, the tell, tell me about it, yeah, <laughs> yeah um, which you know sees the crisis as a, as, a, as a moment of opportunity, and perhaps in some ways it is. But obviously, there's a question of whether one takes those opportunities. But but do you see anything for the left in this situation? Because I think you know from the, looking at the US from the outside, I think a lot of people have been thinking, well, this you know makes the case for for Medicare for all. Uh, you know, the fact of the US having this sort of public health disaster. On a, on a on a unparalleled scale internationally, surely that will have the effect of, of, of making uh, a national health system of some sort uh, more more viable. Uh, we see the fact that, uh, as you say, we have the you know reopen the economy mo movement, uh, but having to shut down the economy in the first place is is, is presumably not something uh, neoliberals are particularly happy about. Uh, at the start, we've seen the, the valorization of so-called key workers, you know, you know, sort of logistical workers, nurses and doctors and, and so on, which, which again, isn't obviously in the interests of, of neoliberals, but, but it is your view entirely, <laughs> entirely pessimistic. 
Well, uh, let's take this at two levels. First, uh, practical empiricism. If it's making uh, Medicare for all in the United States, which, by the way, in and of itself is nowhere near what you guys have in terms of the national health system, but, you know, if it's making that uh, more likely, why is it that with the two bailout uh, packages that we've had so far, basically the Democrats have been totally unable to even get any kind of payment for treatment for people with co just with COVID, not anything else. And moreover, um, the, the kinds of uh, things that they did get in these bailouts are incredibly attenuated, even relative to, you would think, what would be politically popular, which is the government paying for at least limited aspects of testing and treatment, right? And they can't even get that in the United States. So, I mean, this whole idea that somehow, you know, people are going to think this through and see that, you know, what this really needs is is some kind of uh, state, uh, uh, single-payer state medicine. I mean, it's just totally implausible politically. So that's the, the empiric empirical side of this. But, you know, uh, here's where I'm. I mean, you think I'm dark, but I haven't gone dark yet until now. <laughs> um what is the likely outcome of this medically induced depression? Anyway, the likely outcome is that, uh, A, the virus is not going away. I mean, all this crap about going back to normal and, you know, oh, well, when we flatten the curve and then we can just go out and there'll be a, vi there'll be a vaccine, we can come back to that. I mean, that's all just totally false. I mean, the more you understand about these issues, the more you understand none of that's true, that it's not going away, that there will be waves of this from now on. That So there's no sense in which we can go back to the way we lived before at all. It's just not possible. And that will give rise, and we're already seeing it, to uh, a political reaction. That is, we, we are going to see a really nasty right-wing politics that we didn't even see at the end of the last crisis. And we're already seeing elements of, and I, I use the term advisedly, fascism, that are going to be promoted as people become more and more disillusioned through time that there and uh, speaking in the United States I think there's two levels at which they'll be disappointed they'll be certainly disappointed in the fact that the virus doesn't go away and so therefore all kinds of controls will have to constantly be reimposed okay but at the same time I think what we're seeing is the the serious uh, social and economic decline in the United States that 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 is the real consequence of this at least for people living in the United States, that they're going to see that their standard of living, their political ability, so forth and so on, is really uh, deteriorating relative to even other countries, especially countries, I would argue, in East Asia. Other people have argued this, too. And so what is that going to do to the politics? It's going to make it way worse. It's going to make it more fascistic. I mean, in some sense, Trump is not the worst. That it's the next stage that's going to be really bad, because what's happening on the right and among neoliberals is that they're playing fast and loose with this kind of rebellion that's going on because they think they can control it. And you know, I know that um, historical analogies aren't always perfect, but that's exactly what happened in Weimar Germany. <laughs> that. Um, 
the 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 big industrialists thought they could control these kind of you know fringe groups like Nazis and so forth, and it was okay to use them against their their political enemies. That's exactly what's going on right now. And where does that lead? That leads to a situation where they lose control of these groups, and that, that the groups become more fascistic themselves. And I have not heard a good argument why that's not happening in the United States. And back to your earlier question. The left is not at all paying attention to this. They're all imagining this brighter world, which could happen, and not even seriously talking about the actual politics that are, that are playing out in front of them right now. Going back to the financial crisis, so I mean, obviously, you were writing that at a, at a particular low point of the left, uh, in t- in, you know, organisationally, and and since then, we've obviously see, seen the emergence of the socialist left in, in in America. We've seen the the left would turn, um, which since abated in, in in the Labour Party in the UK. We saw the Bernie Sanders campaign. Do you feel that the the, the greater size of, 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 the, of the left in, in the US and internationally, does that give you any optimism at all? And, and, and also, do you feel like there's a more uh, sophisticated understanding of neoliberalism on the left today than there was in that period where, as you say, it was very much identified with laissez-faire, small state and, and so on? Right. Well, I'll, can I take them in reverse order? Yeah, sure. I, I do think that the, the understanding is getting better. Um, whereas, you know, when I give talks now, I don't have to go on and on about how it's not about laissez-faire anymore. I think, think that has kind of sunk in to a certain extent. And, and even to a greater extent, some people on the left are reading some of these people now. So they, you know, so they actually know what they're talking about as opposed to just kind of, you know, wigging it like they used to do. So, so that's all positive. But, on the contrary, against that, I think there's also been some great work comparing how the left understands political organization versus the right. Again, I apologize, this is largely an economic, uh, I'm sorry, a largely American uh, story, but still. Um, the, the, I don't know if you've heard of Theta Scotchpaul, who's a kind of a relatively famous uh, political scientist. Uh, she has done some amazing work uh, first kind of uh, being an anthropologist in the Tea Party and trying to understand how they work. But then she has a large number of students who have looked into the actual political organization behind the neoliberals, um, in particular with the Koch seminar. See, I mean, let's get very specific here in the United States. And then she had her people also look at uh, how the left treats uh, organization and funding uh, in something called the Democracy Alliance. I don't know if you've heard of that either. But the, it's the closest things you can get to the Koch seminars. That is what they both do is they bring together rich people to partly ideologically inform them and partly, of course, uh, to solicit funds for political activity. Okay? So that's uh, what she's done. Is she, she and her uh, colleagues have compared those. And the, the comparison is quite uh, strangely uh, enlightening yet frightening. That basically the difference is that the Koch group are Leninists. Yeah. <laughs> and unapologetic <laughs> Leninists that, you know, we have to take over. And, you know, this isn't a matter of like, you know, arguing it out. We tell you 
what we believe, that is the neoliberal doctrine, and you give us money and help us work to bring it about. Okay? What is the Democracy Alliance like? The Democracy Alliance is structured like a marketplace of ideas, and I use the term advisedly because that is a neoliberal term, right? It, it, what happens is that it's kind of like Occupy, that it presumes that uh, political activity will bubble up from unstructured cadres. And uh, what these what the, it does is that it brings these cadres together in the kind of a, almost a marketplace or a circus where everyone does their pitch in front of the rich people. <laughs> and then the rich people get to decide, oh, well, you know, I like this or I don't like that or whatever. And uh, unlike the Cokes, where, the, where the, the funding is totally structured, that, um, you know, you don't get a choice as to where your money goes when you give money to the Cokes. They have their own political bank. They have their own setup. You know, you give them the money. That's it. Um, in uh, on this kind of left democracy alliance, what happens is there's no continuity to the funding. The funding is unstructured. So that means that the people giving the money can constantly kibitz into the political activities that they choose. And so, you see, I mean, it's, it's exactly the opposite of Leninism. So I, I find this a tremendous irony, right? <laughs> it's that um, in repudiating previous left doctrine, the the left has become way more neoliberal in terms of its actual political activity, whereas the right has become way more Leninist in its political activity. See, I think that's the lesson that we can learn from the United States, that, that the left is set up to lose if it keeps operating in that way. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you'd like to hear the extended version of today's interview, then please consider becoming a supporter of the show. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from $3 a month, which is just over £2. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up.